continue through the story that we've been doing for the last 23 weeks. Today is chapter 24, and I hope you guys have enjoyed uh, this journey that we've taken together. So far, we've been through the entire Old Testament, and uh, the last couple weeks, we have spent our first couple weeks in the New Testament. Two weeks ago, we studied the birth of Jesus and celebrated Christmas on Father's Day, which makes all the sense in the world, I'm sure. But we pulled it off, and it was a lot of fun. And then last week, we talked about Jesus' baptism and the beginning of his ministry. And so today, we want to continue looking at his ministry, and specifically, Jesus as a teacher. So if you have your Bibles or your mobile app, go ahead and open them uh, to Matthew and Luke. We're going to be bouncing around quite a bit, but those are the two books that we'll end up landing in most often. So how many of you have a favorite teacher? Somebody that jumps to mind the minute you hear the phrase favorite teacher. Okay, a few hands. How many of you have a crazy teacher? Maybe somebody that uh, did some off-the-wall things, but things you still remember nonetheless. How many of you can think of a bad teacher? If you're a homeschool student, put your hand down. They're sitting next to you. (laughs) I have several memorable teachers in my life. Some because they were awesome, awesome, and others because they were, well, different. Take, for instance, one of my high school Spanish teachers. She wasn't the full-time teacher. That amazing lady was on maternity leave for the entire second semester. No, she was a long-term sub who thought the best way to teach us vocabulary words was through something she called Suggestopedia. For this activity, she would ask us to find a space on the floor and lie down. Seriously. Then she would turn off the lights. Then she'd get out a flashlight, and she would turn it like this with the light pointing down and look at these words on her desk with the lights off, like she was at a campfire reading ghost stories. And she proceeded to read us Spanish words and their pronunciation very calmly, soothingly, for 20 minutes while we were lying down in the dark. I learned in that class that Suggestopedia is Spanish for nap time. In college, I had a professor that would provide notes for math class in a very intriguing fashion. First, he would start class like normal. Big blank chalkboard at the front of the lecture hall. Yes, I said chalkboard. Apparently, I'm that old. Then you would proceed to fill the entire thing. So one equation on the top, this is your left, top left, and you'd go this way. But then when the equation ended, he would just put the next one right next to it and wrap it around, and then it would just keep going. So the board filled all the way down. Now this is the point where a normal teacher would take the time to erase the board and start over. Fresh board, uh, new lesson, keep going. He decided that that 30 seconds was too valuable. And so he would erase with his right hand as he wrote behind it with his left Go ahead, try it. Go ahead, try it. Write it on your paper. I can't do it. I guess it's probably because I'm right-handed. But it was, you, you remember these things. I have plenty of stories about awesome teachers as well. Uh, one of them is that I still know the quadratic equation because in my junior year of high school, we had to get up in front of the entire class in groups of two or three and sing it to the tune of Pop Goes the Weasel. I kid you not. We had no idea what that had to do with anything But when I got to college and I took all my extensive math classes, I was one of the first ones to write it down every single time, and I did it to the tune of Pop Goes the Weasel. Teachers can have a profound impact on our lives. Things we remember for years because of how they were presented or how we used them in our lives. And Jesus is widely considered the greatest teacher who ever lived. His lessons have been remembered and passed down for generations. He used all kinds of methods to teach, relying heavily on parables. But he also used direct teaching and miracles, all of which we see in this chapter of the story. So since we are focusing on Jesus as teacher today, 
I have a couple of lessons that I want to cover from the chapter of the story. These lessons won't cover the entire chapter. Most of these stories could be their own sermon series and have in the past. So rather than keep you guys here through the fireworks tonight, I just want to pull out three lessons from several parables and stories from this chapter. The first lesson is this. You are valuable to God. We assign value to all sorts of things. Some have a monetary price tag, our home, our car, our phones. And others we give value because of the priority we give them in our lives. Our children, our friends, our phones. And you can find out the value you place on something by how you feel about it when it's lost. I have managed to lose my wedding ring several times over the last 18 years of marriage. One of those times was the first year my wife and I were married. We lived in a small apartment in Wichita, and I don't make a habit of taking my ring off very often, but for some reason I had, and it was gone. We looked everywhere, behind the dresser, under the bed, in the couch, under the couch, in the chair, under the chair, nothing. I was convinced it was gone forever. Less than a year into married life, and I had already lost the ring, the symbol of eternal love and unity that was to bind us together forever. Gone. It remained lost for a couple days as we continued to search high and low, sometimes in new places like the car and other times in the places we'd already checked as if we didn't see it the first seven times we checked there. Then one day I was putting on a shoe that I hadn't worn in a while, and I felt something down in the toe. Yep, my ring. To this day, I still don't know how it ended up in that shoe. And heaven forbid you misplace your phone. Oh my goodness, the dread we have when we lose our phones. We go back to restaurants hoping it's still on the table, searching high and low in our car. Quick, somebody call it to see if it rings. Thankfully, those of us with Apple Watches have the ability to ping it and it will make little noises. My daughter did that last night and found it in grandma's house. My mom was very confused about what was pinging and where, uh, but, but my daughter found it. We have a family app that we use, and I think quite a few of you uh, use it as well, but it, we can see where any of the four phones in our family are at any given time, and hopefully the person that's associated with that phone is there as well. But we look for material possessions high and low, over and over, sometimes for hours on end. And that's for things that can generally be replaced. I can get a new ring, I can get a new phone. It's so much more urgent and full of anxiety when a person is lost. And so that's what Jesus starts to teach us, the value of the lost. So beginning in Luke chapter 15, verse three. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus starts off by comparing us, or comparing a lost sinner to a lost sheep which that audience would have understood to be very, very valuable. You and I might not fully understand what it's like for a shepherd to lose a sheep, but those listening to him in that audience sure would have. Think of a sheep to a shepherd like your phone to you. Yes, it's that serious. And just in case they needed a better demonstration of this value, uh, he continues in the next verses with a monetary comparison. Continuing in verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So he has now illustrated twice for them 
how important the decision of one sinner who repents can be. But he's not done. He continues with a parable about a family. It's incredibly familiar, and you probably know it as the story of the prodigal son. This story has, been, has also been accepted into popular culture pretty readily. In fact, it's so familiar that the title of prodigal has been assigned to TV shows and books and various things that have nothing to do at all with the Bible. It starts as a man divides his estate between two sons. One son stays around and continues to live out his father's wishes. The younger son makes a different life choice, shall we say. In verse 13, we read that he, quote, squandered his wealth in wild living. I think we can all picture what that would look like today and maybe even know somebody who's headed down that path. So this parable continues, and the son finds himself in the land of a severe famine and out of money. These two things don't go well together. He has no other choice than to find a job. And the job he finds is feeding pigs. One day the son finds himself so hungry and down on his luck that he's looking longingly at the pig food, wanting to take a bite. Do you realize how down you have to be to want to eat pig slop? We read in verse 17 that, quote, he came to his senses and realized that even the servants on his father's property would have more than they could eat. And here he is face down in pig food. So he picks himself up, prepares for the worst, and heads home. So we pick it up in Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now you know the older son is furious at this. And he expresses his displeasure, saying something along the lines of, I've been here the entire time working for you, doing everything you ask, obeying you. But you throw a party for him? And again we see the love of a father beginning in verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You have great value in your obedience. Don't miss that. We have seen three stories now of celebration about finding the lost. A sheep, a coin, and a son. But Jesus makes it clear that there is still much joy and especially reward for those that are obedient already. With the lost sheep, it says, more rejoicing for the one sinner who repents. That means there is already rejoicing for the 99 that are currently there. In the prodigal son, the father says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Your obedience is earning you everything the father has. And for God's children, that's heaven, literally. Not some catchphrase of, oh, that would be heaven or being here is like heaven. No, for us, it's literal heaven. Eternity with our heavenly father, streets of gold, room prepared for you, on and on, forever. But the return of the lost will always cause celebration because every soul is valuable to God. Those who are obedient should join in the celebration without hesitation or judgment. But now the real work begins. Once you're a part of the family, there is work to be done and you are expected to take part in it. And that's the second lesson Jesus teaches in this story. You are called to share the gospel. I think we all know that. We understand that a big part of the Christian life is sharing the love of Jesus with others. 
But I think sometimes we try and qualify who the others are to us. We look for excuses as to why our not sharing the gospel with someone is okay. Maybe we convince ourselves that it's not doing any good. Maybe you've invited this person over and over. You have spoke to them about Jesus. You have prayed for them every day. And they have never set foot in your church or opened a Bible in your presence. So what's the point? Why continue knocking on that door? Because we are called to share the gospel regardless of how we feel it will be, it will be received. Matthew 13, 3 through 9. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This parable speaks to us in a couple ways. The first is with Jesus as the farmer and us as the soil. And so he's simply asking us as his followers and as people, what type of soil will you be? Will you have a shallow faith that arises quickly but doesn't last? Will you have no roots planted and wither away? Will you be thorny and cut down the message of Christ? Or will you be good soil ready to produce a crop many times over what has been sown in you. And I think we would all long to be that good soil. And so once we've made that decision that we want to be that good soil, the roles get reversed a little bit and we become the farmer. Just like the farmer, your job is to scatter seed amongst all the soil. You don't have to worry about the soil. You don't have to worry about the weather. You just have a job to do. Spread the message of Christ. You can't worry about how it received or if you feel like it isn't working. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We are, we are called to share the gospel, period. But it takes action. Did you catch that? In verse 3 it says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. He didn't stand on the porch and toss it up into the wind and let the wind scatter it where it may. He didn't fill a bag and t attach it to one of his donkeys and poke a hole in the bottom of the bag so that the donkey would spread it as it grazed the fields. He didn't assign it to another farmhand to do for him. No, he went out and he sowed the seed. So we must go out, and we must share the gospel. But how? Maybe you're sitting there saying, I don't know what to say. I don't know where to start. I've only been a Christian for a short time. So we're going to look at another very famous parable for the answer to these questions. It's a parable that people might be surprised to find in the Bible, because, again, culture has so readily accepted it, and you see it everywhere. The Good Samaritan. You hear it all over the news. A Good Samaritan stopped and helped the man back onto his bike and got him on his way. A good Samaritan stopped and helped the turtle across the highway. It seems like whenever news stories can't find or they missed the name of the person involved, they just call them the good Samaritan. So this parable is found in Luke 10, if you want to turn there and follow along. The story starts with an expert of the law challenging Jesus on what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus asked him what he, as the expert in the law, believes. And so the man answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, you got it. Do that, and everything will be good. That should have been the end of it. Shortest parable in the book. Instead, the lawyer just quoted the expectation of Christ's followers, and now he has a question. And we see that in Luke 10, 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, and who is my neighbor? Boy, if that doesn't hit home for all of us. That first part again says, but he wanted to justify himself. 
We do that all the time. We say or think things like, well, surely that's not what Jesus meant by my neighbor. I'm not saying you should just give away your money or your resources uh, without being thoughtful and conscious of the fact that it was a resource given to you by God. What I am saying is that those questions and doubts can't be the first thing we think of when we see people in need, either physically or spiritually. And so Jesus clarifies all of this with the familiar part of the story beginning in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Jesus then does what any good teacher would do, and he asks the student, in this case the man, he asks him a question. And he says, which one was the neighbor to the man? The thing to always remember with this story is that the priest and the Levite would have been seen as holy people who had great knowledge of the law and the expectation of God's love. They would have been expected to treat people as God would want them to be treated. On the other hand, the Samaritans, as a people, were seen as lower class because they were known to not keep the law. The man thinks about it and begrudgingly says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus' response was, go and do likewise. So the Samaritan was not concerned with the injured man's race or his social standing or even with how he got there. We don't know for sure whether he actually saw the robbers attack the man, but it seems to be implied that the Samaritan came by after the attack. So he's just sitting there with a man who needs help. He simply went above and beyond to help a man in need. He dressed his wounds, transported him to a safe place, gave the man some money, and promised to come back and check on him. We are called to share the gospel, not like the priest and the Levite, but like the Samaritan. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. We are called to spread the gospel and use words if necessary. Lesson three, you are capable because Jesus is dependable. There are three miracles in this chapter that should give us all the confidence in the world that because of Jesus, we can tell others about him. Even if we don't think we have the talent or the resources, we are going to see that none of it matters because of who Jesus is for us. So the first one of these miracles comes from the book of Mark, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat on the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. As this mass of people is traveling down the street and on their way to Jairus' home, a woman who had been sick for many years and tried everything the doctors had recommended and spent all of her money on treatments, made her way through the crowd simply to touch Jesus' robe, believing that this simple interaction would heal her. Jesus pauses for a moment to find out who it was, and the disciples are like, well, yeah, someone touched you. There's this giant crowd. Of course somebody touched you. And he says, no, no, I know somebody did it on purpose. I felt them. And so he looks around, and he finds this, this woman in the crowd, and he heals her. And so now you know Jairus is getting antsy. His daughter is dying, and Jesus takes time to stop and help somebody else along the way. I like to picture Jairus standing there, tapping his foot with his arms crossed, saying, come on, Jesus, yeah, 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 lady healed, great, let's move it along, daughter dying, let's go. 
And then Jairus gets the news that no parents wants to hear. People come from his home and tell him that it's too late, his daughter has passed away, and there's no need for Jesus anymore. So in verse 36, we read, Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were there with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha koum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. God's timing is not always our timing. Sometimes the unthinkable is allowed to happen, and we are left to ask why. Sometimes we even laugh like the people in the house. But this story tells us that those that laughed were put out, and only the child's parents and the disciples were allowed in the room to see the miracle. Sometimes the marriage falls apart. Sometimes the cancer is not cured. Sometimes the money runs out. And when we turn to Jesus in those times and we say, you're too late, and he says, why all the commotion and wailing? everything will be just fine. Do we laugh? Do we doubt? Or are we like Jairus and his wife who believe that Jesus is dependable? In Matthew 14, starting in verse 15, we see our next miracle. Jesus had received word of John the Baptist's death at the hands of Herod and had retreated to find some time alone. But the crowds were not about to let that happen, and they and the disciples were waiting on the shore when Jesus' boat found land. And after a while, the disciples approached Jesus and asked him to send the crowd back to their villages so that this crowd could buy food because it was getting late and they knew that people were getting hungry. And Jesus tells the disciples that there is no need to go away. They can give them something to eat. So the disciples do a quick count. Right? They look around and they go, hey, Peter, how many you got, man? Just one? John, what about you? Any bread? And they find that only, they only have five loaves of bread and two fish for about 5,000 people. Jesus asks them to bring him the food and proceeds to bless it and multiply it and feed all 5,000 people. Not just feed them, but to have enough left over to fill 12 baskets. I think that's the part of the story that I always miss and forget, is that he didn't just feed them. He fed them to excess. They were full, so much so that there was 12 baskets left over. Again, we see that when disciples doubted, Jesus was dependable. His ways were not their ways. They wanted to break up the party and send people out to use their own resources. And Jesus said, no, no. Use what you have. The disciples feel like there is no way that this is going to work. We do that. Jesus asks us to use our resources to feed people, and we say, that will never work. But Jesus says, bring your resources to me. And he multiplies them far beyond what we thought we had. After he had fed the 5,000, Jesus went up to a mountain to pray alone, and the disciples spent the night on a boat. And they got up to fish early the next morning. And in verse 25 of Matthew 14, we read the following. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But, then, uh, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? 
And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What is the wind in your face distracting you from Jesus? Is it the voices telling you you can't possibly do it? You can't possibly go where he's calling you. You can't start that Bible study because you don't know enough about the Bible. You can't reach out to that guy because he's been in prison. You can't talk about Jesus with your coworkers. You might get fired. See, Peter was walking on water until he looked around. Did you catch that? A lot of times when we hear this story, we focus on the fact that Peter started sinking when he took his eyes off Jesus, and that's true. But if we only focus on that part of the story, we miss the fact that Peter was walking on water. He was doing the impossible until he quit trusting Jesus and felt the wind. We can trust Jesus. He has proven to be dependable time and time again. Look at the lines in each of these stories. He says, bring them here to me. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Bring your resources to Jesus, whatever they may be. Have faith that the God who has proven to be dependable will multiply them for his purposes. And don't fear. And you too can walk on water. The God of the universe wants you to help him spread his message. That's not something we should run from. It's not something that we should shy away from because we don't know how to do it. That's not something to fear because of the scope of the work. That's a calling to embrace and to cherish. To know that God has not asked you to work alone. He wants to help you. Don't know what to say? Depend on him to give you words. Don't know where to start? Depend on him to guide your steps. Don't know what resources you have? Depend on him to make you enough. Maybe you're here today still wandering lost like the prodigal son. Maybe you're face down in pig feed. Maybe you're looking around your life asking you, how did I get here? You don't feel like you're ready to spread any sort of message of Christ because you haven't been living in the love of Christ for quite a while. God's arms are open. He is simply saying, come home and let's celebrate. He wants to throw you a party. We have people at both decision point doors and online ready to help you find God's love again or maybe for the first time. If that's the pull of your heart today, that voice you just can't ignore, then I invite you to go visit with them. Because you see, we're all equipped. We are valuable, we are called, and we are capable. We have the seed in our hands. Place your eyes on Jesus, ignore the wind, and decide today, where will you scatter it? So let's stand and sing, and as we do, if you have a decision to make, please visit the decision point today. Let's stand.